Do you spend time unpacking what sustainable really means when it comes to food? Today, we have the help of Chef Joe Barrett to unpack exactly that. And it's not a black and white conversation on today's show. Welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 348, and I have with me as a guest one of Australia's most innovative chefs, Joe Barrett, joining me. Now, you might have heard of Joe first through her uh, accepting the challenge of joining Yoast Baker's Future Food System Project, which was the the completely self-sustaining house in Federation Square in Melbourne. And her, Joe, and fellow chef Matt Stone from I think it was like February to November that year uh, basically spent the year living and working out of the tiny urban zero-waste farm uh, which, uh, I mean, gosh, it encompassed aquaponics, solar power, a micro farming, a charcoal tank, a rooftop garden. And it was just an incredible, uh, experiment, if you like a successful one too, with so many learnings uh, for both Matt and Joe for Yoast and for everybody who toured the house uh, to see just what might be possible right there in the middle of a city if we started to think about designing differently and if we started to think about connecting more deeply to a sense of place. And on today's show, we don't just talk about her time uh, in the Future Food System Project, but we actually also talk about her personal journey into becoming a chef and why she did that, but then also unpacking cooking and how people can sometimes get overwhelmed by recipe books and how we can chunk down and think about what we're personally into and excited by to create the sparks to move forward and to build skills. And it's just a really beautiful conversation about cooking and exploring what that's meant for Joe, but also as an invitation for all of us to think about what it means and what we're inspired by and how we can connect more locally to the food that grows around us and some of the revelations that happen on the way, uh, like the pear tart one that I share uh, in the conversation. Um, so Joe's got a beautiful new book out called Sustain. And I definitely encourage everybody to take a look at it. I was kind of leafing through it at one point in our conversation, just thinking, oh my gosh, it was lunchtime and I'm getting hungry now because everything looked so delicious. And, uh, and my son and I are looking forward to having a crack at the buckwheat noodles this weekend and maybe one of her gorgeous uh, desserts. There are some beautiful, beautiful recipes and it definitely speaks to all types of eaters. There's a lot of plant-based, there's a lot of pickling, ferments, souring, uh, there are some wild meats. I mean, anyone who eats anything will find recipes and techniques and skills to build 
from this book. So I think it's beautiful and definitely worth adding to the inspiration shelf. Uh, and I'm super excited to hook into that conversation in a little minute. But of course, I shall remind you that we have wonderful sponsors that help me bring this show to you every single week. And for the month of September, they are our major sponsor, Oz Climate, with their 10% off on the dehumidifiers and Winix air purifiers. Now, a little reminder here, if some of you have these appliances already and you know how passionate I am about them as a mould preventer and uh, as someone with a son with dust mite allergy, um, it's very hard to keep those levels of dust mites down without being like the most meticulous cleaner on the planet. And full disclosure, as an ADHD parent, um, I am not great at doing that. So the Winix Air Purifier is like health insurance for us um, in terms of that aspect of things. But I'm a huge fan of their products. The dehumidifiers suck water so much faster than any other dehumidifiers I've ever um, tried. Uh, and your code is LOWTOXLIFE and you get 10% off. And an, a housekeeping tip, as I said, if you do have them, is to remember to vacuum out the filters once every couple of months, uh, if you can remember, um, because that'll keep your dehumidifier working super efficiently and not have it cranking and using too much power. So it brings the energy usage down, but same with the filter. And in fact, you can get a lot more life out of your filter if you vacuum around it. Um, so you just pull it out, vacuum it up, take all the dust that it's taken already, and then let it do that again a few times before just replacing the filter. A lot of people see, oh my gosh, it's packed with dust. I need to buy a new filter. And you don't. That adds to a huge amount of uh, landfill that we don't want to be contributing to. So make sure you keep your filters serviced with your trusty vacuum cleaner um, every couple of months. That's my housekeeping tip for those of you who already have one or if you're embarking upon one to make the most of it. Keep the energy cost down and keep the refill purchasing to as long as you possibly can before you have to. Uh, and then, of course, we have the wonderful Block Blue Light uh, very important in our modern world with tons of artificial light, lots of people on screens in the evening, uh, switching to things like the Sweet Dreams light bulbs, switching to things like having uh, perhaps some computer glasses that filter out a bit of your computer screen blue light during the day uh, can really help that natural melatonin rise in the evening. Uh, in our modern world and of course there are other things that can support you like a blue light blocking face mask if you live somewhere really lit overnight with street lights uh, shining into window cracks and things uh, and then of course if you've got bubs you've got those brilliant hallway lights that you can implement or put on a light in a bathroom that means you're not having to switch on lights containing blue lights in the middle of the night when you're tending to toddlers and babies waking up in the night um, who need you. So uh, one of my favourite things that they've just brought out as well is they've extended their um, portable reading light range. Uh, so you have the clip-on little one um, with just the blue and you have the new one with the different phases as well, which is really handy for travel. Uh, and then you also have these awesome blue light blocking kitchen track lights. So, you know, when you just want to have a little bit of subtle 
dim light on in the kitchen after hours, dinner's finished, maybe you want to make yourself a herbal cup of tea um, and then watch TV or read a book, um, but you don't want to switch on the kitchen light and then flood yourself with blue light again after the sun goes down. You can now get these little uh, track lights that you can stick under your kitchen cabinets for a blo- like no blue light uh, in the, at those times of the evening. So I'll let you go and check out the website and the new products that have come out if you're a block blue light old timer. But your code is LOWTOXLIFE15. It is an international offer. Um, the products are really durable. I love that, I mean, gosh, I don't even remember the last time I bought the Sweet Dreams light bulbs. They're mercury-free, by the way. A lot of eco light bulbs are not. Uh, and... Uh, they are incredibly long lasting and of course, protecting you from that artificial blue light in the evenings. So that's over at, uh, block blue light, block blue light underscore official is how you can follow them on Instagram. And my last wonderful sponsor is someone helping us protect our health. Uh, it's Thera Health. They're back with the Nordic Naturals Arctic Cod Liver Oil. Uh, and this is an incredibly wonderful brand of cod liver oil, such a pure product, such a passion for sustainability uh, in their manufacturing processes. I mean, they provide so much information where you can really look under the hood of how they run things, how they produce things, how they filter things to make sure you're not being exposed to things like mercury in your fish oil supplements, which you have far less traceability on in the cheaper uh, chemist style um, uh, bog standard, you know, 300 capsules for $15 kind of situations uh, where here you take your teaspoon of your Arctic cod liver oil in the mornings and that is a wonderful addition to your overall health insurance plan, as I call it. Uh, and actually I was looking at a study on uh, trying to find a recent study that I could share with you guys. And this one actually dated back to just gone um, October last year, 2022, uh, where a group of scientists came together to have a look at the far reaching benefits of uh, EPA and DHA and ALA on brain function. And you actually have a situation where uh, the the cells that contained more of the omega-3 in their membrane, so brain cells with high levels of omega-3 in the membrane, have been shown to be better at communicating with other brain cells and other cells in the body. Uh, which is an extremely important process in brain function. And these scientists last year actually were able to demonstrate that consumption of omega-3 improved learning, memory ability, cognitive well-being, and blood flow to the brain. So thinking about kids learning at school right through to older people who were perhaps consuming less omega-3s through their diet, Uh, who might have cognitive decline, Uh, these uh, omegas are actually supporting all of those people. So through the whole span of life and for different reasons at different periods in one's life, having an omega-3 rich diet was important. Now we can't always get access. uh, So sometimes a supplement is a great idea. And as I said, when you have your teaspoon in the morning, 
or as directed by your practitioner if they feel you need a little bit more. These scientists found for elderly people, for example, getting two grams of Amigos a day was the the sweet spot for um, having a positive effect. So, of course, if you're talking about uh, medicinal and uh, uh, practitioner level guidance in terms of dosage, then that's something that you want to to have someone who knows you decide. But what is on the back of the bottle taking your teaspoon in the morning uh, is a safe dose and uh, it's just a fantastic way to make sure you're getting enough of those for your brain support uh, and for cognitive performance if that's not something you've been thinking about lately but you've been thinking gee I could use that I'm thinking of ladies with perimenopause as well that is um, a period in our life where a little boost in cognitive performance while the estrogen is leaving the building is also a very desirable positive effect so you have 15% off over at therahealth.com.au on the arctic cod liver oil liquid bottles with the code LOTOX, which is a wonderful discount to help you stock up. Those are our beautiful LOTOX partners, helping you make your swaps a little bit easier on the pocket. And now let's have this wonderful conversation with the wonderful Jo Barrett. Uh, I learned a lot from uh, looking through her book and I'm looking forward to unpacking it in the coming months at our house. And I'm sure it's going to inspire you to learn something new in the kitchen as well. Enjoy. Hello, Joe. How are you? Hello, I'm great. How are you going? I am awesome and I am really looking forward to the word sustain, unpacking it and uh, hearing a bit about your book but also about your journey, which is why I want to start there. A lot of people move into wanting to do something more sustainable as we start to realise what we're doing is the opposite of that in so many different ways. And I'd love to see how that played out for you as an individual, like as a teenager. Was it when it started? Was it earlier? Did you grow up with hippie parents? Or (laughs) are you more of like a born again out of the junk food era person who's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe all this crap. Where? What does it look like for you? Um, I guess I'm a little bit of a plain Jane. Um, I grew up in the suburbs and I don't, we never really spoke about sustainability. It wasn't a thing when we were growing up and I didn't grow up in a necessarily foodie family, Mm. but we had a beautiful surrounding. We lived on an acre um, just out in the suburbs, but it was so idealistic. There was no fences. I have two older brothers, so I was really inquisitive trying to catch up to them and we were we had a lot of freedom to roam around outside. And my neighbour, um, he had a big veggie patch and we all kind of got involved in his veggie patch. And I just have really great fond memories of food and mm. they were kind of instilled in us. But I just remember kind of making bread with dad and it sitting by the fireplace proving or making schnitzels or going on picnics and my grandparents would bring delicious food with us. And I don't necessarily remember it being delicious. I just remember the feelings that it it evoked, um, you know, sharing food and being around family. And I loved being outside. Mm. And I think I never really second guessed becoming a chef. When I was in primary school, loved cooking. And I, I remember my brother coming back from his high school and he'd made chocolate brownies. And I remember feeling really jealous that he was able to cook at school. 
I couldn't, he's six years older than me and I couldn't wait till I got to the point where I got to cook at school. And then I had really supportive um, food tech teachers. So I spent my lunch times in the, in the kitchen with them and they'd show me how to ice cakes. And I set up a little cafe um, at school, making coffees for everyone and the teachers. And I just had really supportive parents who um, harnessed that dream of becoming a chef. A few people said, oh, it's really hard work. Um, and at the same time, it's really active. So to be able to be, again, outside climbing trees, playing basketball, I, I got a job really early and was able to go and buy produce and bring it home and cook. And, yeah, I just had a – it wasn't a sustainable thing. It was just about food and mm. uh, feeling good. Yeah, uh, nice. And when did it shift in its focus for you? When did sustainability, regeneration become – things that you looked into because, you know, we, you can get taught certain things, like you say, icing cakes, um, but then we're using refined sugars and patisserie, you know, requires quite highly processed things for those textures to come about. So obviously there must have been some pennies dropping at some point. How did that unfold for you? Uh, I think that it's about like we have my family have a really good moral compass and mm. doing the right thing um, and uh I guess cooking is really skilled, skilled based. And I was really focused on becoming a technical chef. I went to school, you know, went to Canada, studied, learned lots of skills. And then it was always following a full process of, of like, it felt nice to cook things from start to finish. Mm. And then um, as I kind of qualified as a chef and then started uh, in a bakery I guess those pennies started dropping because we were working with one ingredient, which was flour. Yeah. And it was so pure and natural. It was just flour, water, and salt. Mm. And I I just all of a sudden felt like all these things I'd been questioning but not knowing what I was kind of asking, was it was being answered and I felt amazing about cooking. And I thought oh, I'm going to chase that feeling of the pure cooking or the pure ingredients where does it come from and you know what are the results that we're getting from from pretty much a bag of flour mm. that you could repeat that process every day but it had different results yeah. and so I started looking into okay well you know how's it being grown is how's that affecting it how's it being stored how is it affecting it and then it's just that that little scratch that you keep scratching and then you open up a box of wow, okay, well, if you spray it or, you know, you're eating that. So it was just like unpacking lots of questions as I discovered and looked further into food, I guess. So it was probably when I became a baker mm -hmm. uh, and then realised that those individual ingredients are so important. So important. And I think for me it was actually having to go gluten-free initially 20 years ago or so and then like taking my list of all the different ways gluten appears on a label and 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 going, right, well, I'll just find the packages that don't have those things on them and then kind of going, okay, I found the gluten or I haven't found the gluten, but what's all this other stuff? And then having to look into that and then going, yeah. <laughs> what the hell is that? And then why is it in my breakfast? And, um, and then I think you're so right in saying the itch that needs scratching because it becomes like this 
onion of layers and layers and layers that you're like, okay, well, I'm now no longer satisfied with shop the produce because that's less complicated because then you have to ask, well, where does that come from and how is it farmed and how far did it travel and, oh, my gosh, and that can be as exciting as it can be daunting. And so I'm curious for you, uh, did you notice that coming up in your own journey of starting to ask questions and how did you find peace within all of those questions? Because that's a huge thing for people transitioning into a more whole food scratch cooking world is the overwhelm of either all this extra work to do or, oh, my gosh, now I have even more questions, you know? Yeah, it did. I I remember specifically one moment after I came back from Canada where I'd been studying and I went out for dinner and they had Canadian scallops and Uh it was a real moment of, hey, I've just been there. I know how long it took me to get home and I know we're in Melbourne and Port Phillip has some incredible scallops. Why are we not eating that? Mm. And it was just uh, unpacking again of, what do we actually grow here? We've got all these climates in Australia perfect for growing. What ingredients are here? And then going to the market and starting to just experiment and being inquisitive. And then I did have a few moments of this is really bad. And that was probably when I started working with Yost and Matt. Mm, I was going to start asking you about that. How did you meet them? Um, So Yost and Matt were doing a greenhouse pop-up in 2012 at um, Queensbridge. That Mm. was part of the Food and Wine Festival. And that was probably when I was really into the exciting stage of produce and, wow, look what we have, look what we're growing. We could be using amazing things. And I was more just extremely excited about produce and cooking, like the feeling of cooking. And then I met Yost and Matt. I went and did a bit of work at that pop-up. I started realizing the waste part. Um, we didn't have much waste in a bakery. Um, and in other kitchens, we were creating our menus pretty quickly. But meeting Yosi can rattle off a million facts. And they kind of completed the loop for me. Um, just seeing what you could, the kind of where you could go with food. And again, that feeling of my moral compass or being kind of completely satisfied that I wasn't harming the planet where I'd spent so much time outside with animals or fishing, diving, that that I wasn't kind of contributing to anything bad to that. And then so I met those guys and I worked at Brothel, which was mm. a restaurant stuff, all the waste from other restaurants creating bone broth. And then I realised that food could be really healthy as well. Uh, and then I guess that was the, the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't really... I couldn't really go back. You know, it's kind of you see something and you can never unsee it. And it was that moment I thought, well, I'm never going to be, you know, a bad cook in terms of the environment. And mm. then Matt and I moved on to Oak Ridge and that was an incredible experience because we had a we introduced a garden. We really focused on cuisine from the Yarra Valley in a high-end establishment and showed that it is possible to change people's preconceived ideas about eating seafood in the middle of the country where where it's not growing or kind of a bit of a sense of place. So 
side. And we were still working alongside Yoast. Um, he would pop in all the time with eggs and milk. And um, he was always kind of pecking or introducing this idea of future food system, um, which was kind of the fifth iteration of the greenhouse projects. Yeah, love it. And uh, sometimes people come into your life, don't they? And they just don't leave you alone. And you, it's, <laughs> n- it's not always that you can figure out why at the time, but you're also not unhappy about the badgering, but you figure it'll all make sense in the end. And so does that lead you to the um, epic undertaking at Fed Square? Yeah, I guess the subjects that Yos would speak about just really made sense. Mm. I never... What he was talking about never questioned. I I thought, yeah, of course that makes sense. You know, food is the most destructive thing that we're doing to the planet right now. And I don't disagree with that because I can see we're planting all these ingredients at Oak Ridge. I see the effort that goes into that and I can't imagine, you know, there was a flip side. We were working on a winery and I could see what goes into producing wine and a big monoculture Mm. everything that he was speaking about I didn't disagree with and we had spent five years at Oak Ridge and the house was going to coincide and I was so ready to do kind of take I guess a further step into sustainability and really push the boundaries about what is possible Mm. Uh, especially as a chef I I think I was too far gone at that point to go to another restaurant I I wanted to see, or I started to question what my role was in in the food system as a chef. It's so um, amazing, Joe. And I think for, I'm really cautious to make sure that the conversation we're having here doesn't make people think, oh, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. A, I'm not a chef. B, I can't move into a fully sustained, you know, any, like I've got three teenagers and I'm at the peak of my career. Like you come try live my life. Like I'm always thinking about everyone and how we can all overlap, right. And move forward in the ways that work for us at that time, the ways that feel doable or exciting and curious. And that's going to be so different from one person to the next based on so many things, right? And that's why I love your book because I see Sustain as such an invitation to flip through the pages, see what kind of sparks a little light in you. Maybe you want to try sprouting something for the first time. Maybe you want to make cultured butter with the kids and everybody getting their hands into a bowl and and um, and turning, you know, those spaces on a weekend into exciting culinary trials um and I think that's where we can all meet like we can all meet at curiosity and a chef's curiosity is obviously going to be uh a lot but incorporate more technical aspects like how far can I push this and how much flavor can I get out of that to the average everyday joe and I think your book meets us really beautifully in the middle so congrats on it because it's it's gorgeous um well, you know, that was the interesting thing because I, I guess I spent myself like my whole life really immersed, especially my kind of adult life, immersed in cooking and that industry, really professional, really high-end, fast-paced. Mm. Then we went to the house and, again, something that's kind of unachievable for a lot of people. But we had tours and I probably met so many people that also had the same questions that I had and exactly the same worries about what is my role in an ecosystem in general day to day and mm. how 
to be a more sustainable person in a busy life that food might not be the major focus. I just have to pay my mortgage and get on with it. And that's really understandable and realistic. But I also don't want to contribute to something that's going to hurt the planet that I live in. So I met all those people who had exactly the same questions and I guess it made me reflect on how can we all do it Mm. and it really came back down to cooking and food and prioritising food in our life for health reasons because we become better people in our communities, um, better for our community in general as a beautiful space or yeah, um, and not having a negative impact. So it actually, from all these unattainable things in most people's lives, like cooking, it became something really attainable for me writing that book and those experiences that I had. I just wanted to share and show people that it can be really easy. It can. That's it. And I think we have to remember, like I teach a lot of people at the beginner's level as a health coach and um, people who've like been appliance reliant. So like if you take the Thermomix away, they literally can't make anything uh, because we haven't had that piece of basic food education growing up. I didn't have it either. I couldn't roast a chook until I was 30. So I get it. Um, And and I think... um, one of my favorite things is just reminding people every time you do something the first time, it's flipping awkward. You're checking back on the thing, the the words, the recipes. Is it 220 grams? Did they say 230? I can't remember. And like, it's really awkward the first time you do anything. Like remember the last time you tried to play a new sport or the first time you had to find the new um, speech and awards center at your kid's school. And you're like, you know, it's like that when you learn any new thing. And I think we have to cut ourselves some more slack about upskilling in the kitchen because it takes time. And so then if you look behind that, it's actually, well, first we then need to want to. And then before that, first we need to have a driver as to why we should want to right? And uh, you've talked about that for you. And I'd love to hear some of the things that have come up for people that you've talked to over the years, uh, either in the beautiful Fed Square project or just, you know, having a cooking class every now and then. What comes up for people? Why are they there? What are you noticing that people are wanting to show up more and more for? I think, which is really interesting because I touched on this, I do touch on this on the in the book. Yeah, uh, exactly. With learning because I really love learning skills. It's, it's really exciting. It's the, that deep dive that I get really excited about. And once you kind of learn that skill, putting it into action. So there's actually four stages when you, when you start to learn something. Um, there's the first stage, which is the unconscious incompetence. So you mm. really... You don't know what you don't know. That's mm. kind of making sourdough. You go in, don't even know what sourdough bread is. I've definitely been there. <laughs> and then stage two, which is comp- competent incompetence. So you conscious incompetence where you you get really overwhelmed. You start knowing that, oh, okay, this is what sourdough is and I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and then there's that conscious competence where you start learning your skill and you can put it into action 
and it feels good and you're just you can just repeat it mm. and then after a while that turns into the unconscious competence which is such a free feeling moment and that's so good to get there yeah yeah and that's i guess what i want with the book and that those experiences from the house or teaching people how to cook is you have to go through those stages and i think sustainability is a big question for people they really they don't know what they don't know i don't know how to get into it i don't know where to start it's really overwhelming you start looking into it and you're like this is too much Mm. and you just bite off one thing one thing at a time and it starts becoming exciting and then it's a freeing feeling so I think that's what I've noticed it's more about where people need to start and I Mm. think food is a really great way to get involved in sustainability or um, especially with food so fermenting is a big one that people get really excited like excited but also fearful about because don't know if you're going to kill yourself if you ferment something (laughs) wrong and there's no way of knowing (laughs) Um, but it's amazing how something so simple can affect you know the planet or your your impact on sustainability with capturing abundance reducing waste in your house increasing you know gut biome health from eating fermented foods and it's so simple Mm. yeah and um, in the conversation around sustainability, you've used terms like monoculture that we just um, uh, threw in there as well. And then, of course, uh, our place in the ecosystem. And what we've noticed, a lot of people who are really clued into what a healthy ecosystem looks like and the fact that biodiversity can only thrive when there's a huge diversity of both animals, plants, insects, everything in between from creature land. In your book, you obviously have your venison and red wine pie, and I can see pork fat being recommended as one of the ingredients. Um, Can you talk to me about how you arrived at that complete ecosystem um, piece and your place in it? Because I think a lot of us you know, you learn about factory farming and then you think, oh, my gosh, I can't eat animals. That's awful. Uh, I remember going through the same thing. And then, unfortunately, with my genetics, that's actually not possible. Um, I need a shed ton of B12. And so um, I kind of felt called back to it. But on that journey back, I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, what's the best way? What's the kindest way? Can cows be a healthy part of an ecosystem? Actually, they can. In fact, they can turbocharge carbon capture and a whole bunch of other things. And I think a lot of people are still stuck in the corporatized version of what a planet-friendly ecosystem looks like and the food that we're eating. Um, You see some pretty scary things like farmers now starting to be taxed for having cows and some, I mean, it's awful what's going on. And it's so so apart from what we should be focusing on, how did you find a piece and a sense of I understand this um, when it came to animals and plants together? I'm always curious because it's a different journey for everybody. Yeah, and I think it's all about balance. Uh, and it's a really funny one because I grew up just not liking meat. Mm. I never didn't want that and it wasn't from a uh, sustainability <laughs> aspect but. Um, I think to create change, it can't be super drastic and it can't be negative mm. and the negativity around sustainability is really daunting. And 
there's been times where I haven't known what to do. You go into the supermarket and you're just paralyzed because you're not sure what's going to be the ethic, most ethical choice. And um, I guess I you you got to have to you have to pick your battles. Yeah. And I don't think changing and upheaving everything in your daily life it's never going to work like that. Mm. So maybe it's biting off one little bit at a time that you could change in your life, like. Maybe you want to try venison because it's a very sustainable, organic, free-range meat that we have a culling program around and you could introduce that into your diet and make one little change rather than a factory farm pork or, you know, cow. It doesn't. You don't have to miss out on anything, which is the most exciting part about it. Yeah. Um, I think for me it was just realising about the balance in life. Mm without balance so you know I use this um, experience from the house a lot with our aquaponic systems where an aquaponic systems where you grow fish uh, in the bottom in a fish tank and then you have a grow bed on top where you grow uh, shallow watered vegetables or herbs like watercress and then they work in a kind of unison so the waste water from the fish goes onto the grow bed and feeds the plants and then all the nutrients drop back down and filter the water for the fish and it works in a complete ecosystem. And each day I would have to test the water for the aquaponic system. Um, and one day our filter just stopped and I didn't think too much about it. And within you know half a day, the balance was out and fish started dying. And I started to realize that, you know, maybe it's one degree in our planet or yeah, wow. Tiniest little thing, the effect that that can have on a really big scale. Mm. Well, we've all seen those natural, if you're an Australian anyway in the last couple of years, we've all seen those natural fish kill images in the papers that are just heartbreaking around um, gas uh, gas farming areas. And, um, I mean, that just, that is like the, the hyper version of what you're talking about in terms of how it can play out when we do things to natural habitats that affect wildlife and food supply. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we, we're now learning about um, the ocean temperatures more and more and what that's doing. Um, and you saw it in the little fish tank in one little sustainability project. Uh, so, And also um, the floods that happened up in the northern rivers and then yeah. watching the effect after that with lettuces and potatoes and that actually in, it was such a horrible thing that happened. But the positivity that came out of that with people realising, oh, lettuce's price has gone up or we can't have potatoes, for me it was like people are starting to realise that you can't have everything all the time and you have to be really flexible with the env- environment and work with it. Mm. Uh, and that was, you know, growing food I think opens your eyes up to a lot of that. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and just even if people are listening and they don't have a backyard or they don't have a balcony and they can't grow something right now. Sprouting is something you can always do no matter where you live. But to think, um, just to think in seasons, my big aha was thinking, oh, I, you know, I just cleaned up my food and started shopping produce and then wanted to learn how to cook better. I was in my late twenties and 
it was a Maggie beer recipe for a pear tart and I was having friends over and I wanted to make that go into the new organic shop that I was shopping at. And I'm like, where are the pears? (laughs) And she's like, it's November. That's where the pears are growing somewhere, not even a flower yet. And I was like, what do you mean? Because I had no connection, no idea. I was a very typical 80s convenience driven city kid. And, um, And I think once you start to realize that, then it is your first step in tuning in to the world that you actually live in, not the world that we built, because they're two different things. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's so true. I think also you eat something like that, you know, in season and taste yeah. so much better. So much better. Another kind of exciting thing that happens to push you along that oh, wow, I don't actually need to really do much to this food for it to taste amazing and people are loving it. <laughs> but I, I'm just doing the final touches on something that's so amazing and yeah. then you're so good because you're eating so healthily. Yeah, it's so true. And I grew up with my one of my aunties in France. I'm lucky to be a Frenchie on mum's side. And I remember everything just tasting so amazing when I went overseas and thinking, why is she not toiling away for like hours? It's just this simple stuff that just arrives. And as I unpacked it, like I said, in my late 20s, when I started to wise up to everything, I was like, good stuff just needs a bit of olive oil, chopping Mm. nicely on a platter, maybe a bit of salt and pepper. Maybe you got to lightly cook it or maybe you can do carpaccio. Uh, Half the time you don't even need to cook things that are beautiful quality and Um, And that for me was another revelation that it just didn't need to be hard for things to taste amazing. Yeah. I think Jamie Oliver did a really great job of that too. Great job of that. So, yeah. Go to the market and I remember like, I can't wait to get my licence and go to the market. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember when my cousin, who was a chef in New York for a couple of decades, got his licence and he used to go to Union Square Market, which is probably which is one of the most amazing markets I've ever seen in my life and um and he was so excited that he as the young new chef like was the lackey that had to go to the markets but for him it was like you know you're not having to convince me to do anything here this is awesome yeah so good so let's talk about your book and some of the skills skills is something you're really passionate about transferring with confidence it comes through in the way that you write these recipes in the way that you have the little breakouts and saying so, you know, just make sure and here's what you need to know <laughs> about this um so it's a real hand holding which is beautiful because if we really want to get people on board we need to talk that way right um, what are some of your favourite skills to teach someone who thinks I'm crap at cooking? Ooh, um, I guess the fermenting is a really yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. One recipe in the book which I love, which is a freshly milled pasta dish with mm-hmm. a fermented red pepper sauce, and the sauce is three ingredients, and the complexity of flavour that you get from fermenting some capsicum. And then you just blend it up and heat it on the stove with a little bit of butter and then you pop the pasta in and it it is incredible. I love that dish so much. And, you know, when I was testing the recipes, I had so many moments of, oh, this is so easy. This is so easy, not because I've done it or because I wrote this recipe, because, you know, a dish might have very few ingredients in it, but you can just 
layer flavor. Mm. And I felt really excited to be able to share that with people. Also, I love that. And how cost effective some of these things could be. There's a um a sprout ball with sprouted um, grains and pulses based on pretty much a falafel. We have 50 grams of grain in it, you know, each different grain and legume. It's so cheap and you could produce so much food. Mm. So I was quite excited that it didn't have to be expensive because I do think sustainability is a privilege. You know, mm-hmm. you're affected, you know, financially. You're not going to make an ethical choice because you just need food. And yeah. I'm not diligent by that by any means. So the idea that it can be affordable and healthy for people to potentially produce more food that's better for them is really like it's awesome. I love that idea. Um, I guess I I wanted the book to be a creative thing, but very useful. Yeah. So there's 30 dishes that you can cook any night of the week that are just a small you know, a small action if it's using venison or maybe using wallaby, a great introduction to some of those alternative ingredients. And then when you had a bit more time, you can move on to those skill builder recipes where you can deep dive and get a result and then go on your own journey about, okay, I've fermented some sauerkraut. I'm going to try fermenting some turnips or also rework the book the other way where maybe you know how to make sauerkraut but what else can I do than put it into a toasty and then maybe put it into a soup and make a sauerkraut soup, which you've never done before. So I just, I just wanted the book to be useful. <laughs> yeah. And I think reminding people that once you know how to do one thing, there are multiple ways you can then go about using that thing is huge because most people have grown up without the culinary uh, education, either like their parents didn't teach them or if you're a chick who was in the 80s and 90s in a private school, uh, often uh, cooking was removed as a sign of supporting feminism, for example, yeah. uh, where it should have been stayed in the chick's schools <laughs> and added to the boys' schools. That's what should have happened. Um but it didn't for most people. And you really do find out how few people learnt how to cook other than maybe making a cake for special occasions or afternoon teas or learning how to make muffins with mum or getting to lick a bowl. That's often the height of culinary interaction for a lot of people, right? So that's what we're dealing with in having to change and re-plug us back in to a joy of producing food for the people we love and for nourishing ourselves, Um, but also as the most uh, sort of obvious way to reconnect to nature for people who live in urban settings. Isn't it amazing for something that keeps us alive? It's nuts. It's actually nuts, yeah, the things that get taken out of school. But I could tell you the date that the Battle of Stalingrad ended and its significance <laughs> in World War II, but I couldn't cook myself a meal uh, to sustain myself. And that is just nuts, frankly, nuts. It's a, a massive dream would be to have cooking compulsory from primary school. Yeah. It would, that would change the world. And again, you talk about privilege, Joe. Like at the moment, we have the amazing Stephanie Alexander program, but not every school can fundraise to get the 40 grand a year to roll something like that out. You know, it has to be prioritized as a completely accessible 
thing and we're talking in Australia, but there are Americans and Canadians and people in Latvia listening right now and everywhere in between who are thinking, yeah, this is important here too. So we're all thinking it if we're interested in these low-tox topics. And I think it's about remembering we can reach out to MPs and local representatives and saying, it's a real problem for me that we don't have cooking in our schools. Uh, what are you doing about it? And see if they reply what they say and and just start remembering that we have voices that if enough of us use them, that makes a difference. Yeah, it was pretty exciting in, at Future Food System when we'd have kids groups through. I can imagine. And yeah. what, like, they would have just been so interested, right? Yeah, and, and it was often the most basic things that I, you know, I thought was that would be basic, but seeing a kid take a pea off a snow pea plant and eat it and be like, mm, yummy. And I was like, that is so cool. Yeah. Getting excited about food like that. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, most kids are just excited about marshmallows and we need to change that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we really do. Uh, and so I want to ask you about uh, a couple of the more project-oriented uh, recipes. Like people might say, oh, pie, doesn't that mean I've got to make pastry and doesn't, you know, doesn't filling take a while? And then like how do you think we can actually start to get excited about the work involved in cooking? Because that's an interesting psychological thing to unpack as well and I know you try really hard to impart that uh and and I'd just love for you to share a couple of the the ways that you recommend I think because it ends up tasting so different to Mm. what you go and purchase or eat at a restaurant you get the benefit of that so it's a process however it's a process if you just look at the recipe and you kind of go oh I'm really overwhelmed by that but if you take a moment to break it down there's not too many recipes in there that are time a time sucker no Uh, so it's often it might be spread out over a day or two but the contact time might be 15 or 20 minutes and take less time on Instagram (laughs) (laughs) I know right and, and remember that you don't have to do it alone. Like I was thinking about this on the weekend uh, and, you know, I had earmarked your buckwheat noodles and we happen to have a busy weekend because we're um, moving soon. But I was thinking like my son's over there watching some YouTube thing and I'm here doing, and this is actually an opportunity for us to spend the next hour connecting and sharing the workload of food as a family. You know, you talked about those beautiful memories as a kid uh, and I was just spending time with the family in France with our little family plugged into the bigger one and we were all, you know, someone was in the veggie patch, someone had started something in the kitchen, uh, someone was rolling something out on the table. Like everyone was kind of doing things and I think we forget that in the past cooking was community. It wasn't just this matriarchal figure in the family wearing the brunt of all of that work themselves. It was a shared experience, not a solo have to do. And anything that we can do to get it back to that makes it a time to connect with people, not just to make things. And that sense of pride. Mm. And shared pride. Again, (laughs) it's not the me show. 
and um, and I think taking the me out of culture whenever we possibly can because it's become a bit of a a disease to focus on it so obscenely. Um, look at me, look at me, uh, look at what we did is so much more deeply satisfying than look at me, I think. Yeah, and also the communicate, like the conversations that happen around that or say you cook the venison pie for your friends and then you mm. have a discussion about, hey, venison's a real problem at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And it's delicious and you've cooked for your friends rather than going out and you can have some conversation. And then they go away and they're like, hey, I had an epic venison pie at my friend's house. And did you know? And the conversation that spreads mm. from it's such a simple thing like a pie, but it, it, the effects that it can have are massive and not just for the ingredient. It's that conversation that can happen, which is, you know, also really impactful. Super so, impactful. Yeah. The, the buckwheat noodles, that they were really funny because we we grew a lot of buckwheat at Future Food System and I struggled. Ah, okay um and obviously there's soba noodles from japan and i tried to make buckwheat bread because we weren't growing any wheat i wanted a gluten-free option and it would always come out quite bitter Mm -hmm. and i was writing the list of dishes i was like oh buckwheat noodles would be so delicious and that was the last recipe that i made up for this book and just kind of chuck stuff together and they worked and I was like, awesome. Oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. I'll take that. My friend Lou, who helped me test a lot of these recipes, she was like, they're delicious. And we we were both so proud of such a simple thing that we chucked together that ended up being one of the most useful dishes in like recipes in that book. Because you can mix that, roll mm. it out, and cut it or put it through a pasta machine. And you don't need to rest it or anything. You just cook them. Cook them and you could be eating them in 20 minutes. And can you roll it out as a dough into a flat a flatbread situation as well? I'm sure you could just cook it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Maybe yeast in there and um, it could be leavened, definitely. Ooh. Bake it in the oven as a cracker. Yeah, love doing buckwheat crackers. Um, well, I'm glad I earmarked that. I'm excited about yeah. them even more now. <laughs> Um, I noticed there's some vegetable oil in the um, recipe book and I wanted to ask about that because obviously monocrop um, agriculture is not ideal and extractive and um, and and we think of vegetable oil as being just universally bad. Where did you arrive on that? I was curious. Um, I use a lot of grapeseed oil as well. So I mm-hmm. guess I wanted to open up at the start of the book we talk a little bit about oils open it up to people that use, I use grapeseed oil a lot. Um, Some really good vegetable oils too that are starting to come through in Australia Mm. where I think a lot of the damage comes through not only, I mean, there's the spraying in the crop, but it's the washing of. Mm, With the um, chemicals. Yeah. And then that wastewater going out into our ecosystem. So again, doing your research into it, Um, but you could substitute to any oil really um anything neutral there's nothing other than the there's a few deep frying recipes in there where i use a grapeseed or a veg oil for that higher temperature cooking mm. but most using um, olive oils as well so i guess sometimes you can exclude a lot of people yeah so again picking the fights i think throughout that book i had to yeah i 
that was always on my mind. No, I didn't want to exclude anyone. Yeah. I love that. No, and I think it's really important. Like I said, we've got to work from overlaps. And then you think, you know, mentioned Jamie Oliver, that something familiar, something new concept as well, keeps people comfortable, but exploring at the same time. Um, yeah, it does become sometimes a bit of a, um, not an ear bashing, but you can approach a few topics in a recipe. Um, if it's about alternative ingredients, um, maybe dairy-free, sugar-free, and then all of a sudden you're like, which one do I do? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you kind of look into, okay, so why is sugar-free? Why shouldn't I be putting caster sugar in? Or what is the oil? And let people kind of start asking a bit of a question and doing their own deep dive to then actually learn it mm. and having no understanding of what you're actually doing when you're cooking. Couldn't agree more. I really couldn't agree more. Um, I'm just actually uh, flicking through the dessert section as I'm talking to you now, Joe. full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally want to eat everything. It's probably because I just got my period, but <laughs> it's looking bloody delicious. Um, I want to ask you to finish off what do you think, because uh, actually I'll unpack it a little bit first. Something I found really interesting about what you talk about at the beginning of the book is the Fed Square project and all of the things that you couldn't do because you were in that place. And so there was a really limited section of things that you had to work with and yet you could be so creative. And I'm thinking of our allergy families who think, oh, now I can't have dairy, what are we going to do? Or... Or the, you know, maybe it's an intolerance or maybe it's an access thing like you guys experienced not being able to do meat, dairy, you know, fish was the protein that you were working with and grains um, mm -hmm. as a difference. Um, how do you recommend everyday people work with uh, constraints and start to learn, okay, well, this is where I live this is like 200 kilometres around us and what's available. I want to make a difference. I want to be more sustainable or I'm dealing with a kid's allergy. How do I actually do that positively instead of being in a deprivation mindset? Because I always think it's always about chasing that discovery, not deprivation mindset. How do you help people do that? Um, well, I'm not going to lie. I definitely had a moment in the house where I was like, what are we going to cook with? I just want to buy a packet of damn butter. <laughs> I use sugar because um, I had my go-to recipes that I, you know, you know that they're a crowd pleaser. People are going to love them. And then all of a sudden the constraint just became so freeing because I learned so much more. So cutting mm. out, not having the sugar and having honey, what else could I use? Oh, okay. What is a tiger nut? And then researching about that and the research became really exciting because of the techniques that I learned or the results that we were getting from something that I'd never tried before. Mm. And I think we live in a time of free information, you know, especially with food on the internet, with YouTube and Instagram, you can type in an ingredient and get how it's grown, where it comes from, how to use it. Oh, look, there's someone who specializes in that. <laughs> I know. It's there's always some wonderful person who has gone to the depths of some tiny little thing it and is, so is in 
enthusiastically <laughs> telling you all about it on YouTube. And so. I think it you can have the negative sad moment and then realise that it's actually quite awesome. You probably you could help someone else with the information that you learn. Um, I think exactly like your pear tart, you know, trying to find a substitute and you push yourself a little bit and you have a moment of like, whoa, I did it. I'm actually okay. And it turned out really well. That's really cool. And um, moving down to the coast, uh, I had to find a heap of new producers and suppliers and it was really hard opening the restaurant and not knowing anyone, but then I've discovered some amazing organic growers and ingredients that I didn't know here. And I've probably connected with the community that if it wasn't for any constraint, I wouldn't have connected with them. Yeah. It can be a really positive thing. And maybe through the research, you connect with another group of people who have dietary requirements that you help each other and you just build a bigger community. So um I think for people like that, it's just embrace it rather than try and run away from it because the skills that you'll get out of it will be really freeing. <laughs> yeah. From the house, it actually became a really clarifying moment from my cooking career, my inquisitive nature about the environment and wanting to protect it. And then combining it all in the house just kind of made me realize, oh, okay. I've, there was a reason that I wanted to be a chef and learn those skills because it's going to help my planet that I live in or and other people. So, yeah, I don't think you can know until you try what you might get out of something. Yeah. I love that you said that, Joe. but also that I want to make sure people heard the part where professional chef Joe did hit a low point and go, oh, my God, this is so freaking hard. I hate this. And then came the creativity and the positivity and the connecting with new people. And then you know more than you ever knew before and you feel even better than you ever did before because of that new network that you've built, either neural network of skills or people that you've met. And so... Um, thank you for just admitting that everybody, <laughs> even chefs, have those low points when you're having to change up the way you do things, whether it's because you've moved somewhere or whether it's because all these ingredients you normally would use are taken away from you. It's completely natural as a part of the yeah. process of growth. Definitely. Yeah, and I've it's helped me a lot now with menus that I write for or, or how I cook at home. I look at ingredients so differently now. Um, don't necessarily just go back to the go-tos that I know work and I'm able to cook for a much broader array of people who have you know maybe dietary or try some new ingredients that make them feel great so it's been awesome <laughs> brilliant and what is your favorite latest ingredient that you've started working with off the top of your head I don't know if it's new but I just at the moment the Brussels sprouts and the radicchio that we're getting mm. um, just I think embracing a little bit of bitterness has mm -hmm. been awesome. Yeah, I've had purple Brussels sprouts um, okay. in my last two veggie boxes and they are so good. Uh, so I'm right there with your sister. The Brussels sprouts <laughs> this season are excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I've loved this chat, um, unpacking what sustain actually means, not just because it's a new book you've written, but it's something we're all wondering about. And 
um, and exploring for ourselves. And it's taking on so many twists and turns depending on beliefs, preferences, where we live, um, what we have access to. It's so different for everyone. So I really appreciate you coming onto the show and talking about what it means to you with your gorgeous book. Oh, no, thanks so much for having me and I love, love this chat. Thank you. And that is today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder, we have so many fantastic shows in our archives these days. If this particular topic was helpful to you, head over to lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on the podcast directory, which gives you food, body, home, mind, and environmental health topics segmented so you can see all the shows that we've done in all of those areas and head straight to what you want. A reminder, we also have 10 fabulous e-courses that I've written with various doctors, naturopaths, health professionals, and experts over the years to support you on your low-tox journey, whether it's making daily swaps, getting ready to make babies, looking after your inflammation, you can hit the courses tab on lowtoxlife.com to explore those. And lastly, I would love to meet you on socials. Go and head over to at lowtoxlife on Instagram or find us on Facebook. It's always such a pleasure to chat and see how you guys are going when you share favorite shows and share them with your friends. I absolutely love that. A little reminder, of course, that all of our shows are not intended as medical advice. They are intended to open the minds and hearts of people and maybe help you explore something you hadn't considered yet, but please always check in with your health professional. And one last little request, if you have time to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast, that would just mean the world to me because it helps us get out there and have other people have confidence that that thing they're considering pressing play on is absolutely worth it. I'll catch you for the next show you tune into. Thanks for joining me again. This is Alex Stewart, founder of Lotox Life.